Good to see everybody this morning. Let me briefly say it is nice to be standing up here again. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to work on a series of lines that whatever I say, I get a little applause. That's just kind of a nice, that's kind of a nice deal. All I was going to say is that since it's been a while, um, I've got a lot to say. <laughs> you know, last Sunday I, I mentioned that I, I got to preach at Northside up in Columbus, and um, I went 75 minutes, and I, I had to hurry. Just throwing that out there. So without any further ado, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be finishing up this chapter today, and... We have seen already how chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians presents to us the necessary wisdom that you need to have in ministry. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse number 7 says this, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. That means wisdom is first. That means wisdom is primary. It's the most important. Why is wisdom the most important? Well, because there's a trilogy of words that are used in the book of Proverbs. It's knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And and wisdom is the highest. And so in your notes, I have wisdom and a little greater than sign. Wisdom is greater than understanding. And understanding is greater than knowledge. So in the hierarchy, wisdom is the highest. Wisdom is is the principal thing. And all thy getting, don't just settle for knowledge. Don't just settle for understanding. You need to get wisdom. And especially if you're going to be involved in ministry, you need wisdom for ministry. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. So just for your information to help you out, I I wanted to give you some definitions in case you've never gone through this before. But very simply, knowledge is information. You know that. Knowledge is just, it's just gaining information. So Thank you for coming here this morning. You're going to be getting some information today. You're going to be getting some knowledge today. But understanding is processed knowledge. So you get the information, you get the knowledge, but you need to process it. You really need to work it through in your mind before you can actually have full and complete understanding of the knowledge that has come your way. So my hope for you is that you will gain understanding of the knowledge that you will be getting this morning. But wisdom, wisdom is applied understanding. Because wisdom is that step you take from fully understanding the information and then actually applying it in your life and making it your own. You see, wisdom comes from experience. That's where wisdom comes from. And the question I would have for all of us this morning is, you'll be getting some knowledge and hopefully you'll be processing it into understanding, but The question before you leave today will be, will you make it wisdom? Will you decide to apply it and begin to systematically apply it in your life? Because wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. You know, a lot of cultures around the world, and well, our culture used to be, sadly not near as much as it is as it used to be, we used to honor the elderly. And the reason we honored them was not just because of their advanced age. It was because of the wisdom they gained 
through their advanced age. It's because they, the years of life had given them so much experience in life that they gained wisdom through it. Because wisdom comes with age and experience, but I guess it's fair to say only when it's the right kind of experience. Even the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes says that it is possible to be old and foolish. It is possible. Just because you've lived a bunch of years doesn't guarantee that you have wisdom. So I've given the title to today's message, The Wisdom of Experience. Because in this last section of chapter number 11, Paul lists his experiences in the ministry. You could say that this is Paul's ministry resume. Now, we've already heard and seen over and over again how in chapters 10 and 11, and you'll see continuing into 12 and 13, the end of this little book, Paul kind of takes a turn and he makes it more personal and he begins to take some time over and over again defending himself because he was personally attacked. And he defends his ministry, which of course is the theme of all of 2 Corinthians. It's all about ministry. But he doesn't defend himself and he doesn't defend his ministry for himself alone. And he doesn't do it for his own personal reputation's sake. But he does it for the sake of the truth. Because, well, the truth is worthy to be defended. And often, since the truth of God is displayed through the life of a minister, and we should all be ministers of Jesus Christ, well, therefore, that minister then becomes the target of personal attack of enemies. But truth matters, and doctrine matters. So Paul decides that he's going to defend it. Now, I'm not going to lie. As much as I can read through the pages of a book, I like Paul. I know this, I'm going to like him when I meet him. Because Paul, he's, he's a plain talker. Paul tells it like it is. I mean, Paul's not the guy who's going to use a bunch of subtle innuendo. He's not going to use a bunch of flowery speech to soften the blow. At times, we've already seen he's accused of being rude in speech and having his speech be contemptible, which, by the way, are unfair characterizations because Paul, all he's really trying to do is help the Corinthians from being deceived by false teachers. Now listen, I've lived a few years on this earth and I have my experiences. And if any of you are here and you're over 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, you've got some experience in your life too. But the real question is, what do your experiences communicate? You look back over the course of your life, what do your experiences communicate about you? Do they show your wisdom in serving the Lord? You see, Paul's life experiences, which, by the way, are nothing more than the result of his free will choices to follow God and not his own selfish desires, they resulted in a couple of key characteristics that we're going to see here today in chapter 11. It's a fairly lengthy number of verses, starting in verse 21. We're going to go to the end of the chapter, so if you'll follow along, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-one. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. 
Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aratus, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. That's quite the lineup. So let's go to the Lord. Let's ask him if he would give us some knowledge, some understanding, and some wisdom. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you with this section of Scripture, first and foremost, we're humbled and we're thankful Uh, For the truth of your word, it's eternal, it's perfect, it's pure. And how your servant, the Apostle Paul, chose to live it out in such a way that, well, cost him a great price, a lot of suffering. And when we read lists like this, I know I'm humbled often thinking about the things that I complain about. And I've not achieved even anything near this list. And yet, Lord, you have given it to us for a reason. That whether or not we ever have to live the life that Paul lived, yet we have something. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would give us, through this information, some real biblical understanding of what it all really means, and then ultimately the courage to respond and apply it in our lives so that we can have the biblical wisdom to literally carry out ministry and our experiences be those things that communicate and differentiate us between those false teachers that are just empty, empty words. I pray for this wisdom for all of us here today, and I pray, God, you'd be honored through it all. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, the first point of study that we'll have today, number one in your outline, is the boldness of Paul's experience. The boldness of Paul's experience. He starts out and he says, Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I'm bold also. So we've seen already that since Paul's critics and since the false teachers that were trying to mess up the Corinthian church were Judaizers, they were legalists, they were, you could say, of the back to Moses crowd. They wanted to take them back into the Old Testament law and the life of Moses under the law and the book of Galatians is written all about that. In verse 22, Paul gives to us his pedigree. He talks about where he comes from. He tells us that he too is the son of Abraham. And well, since he too is the son of Abraham, by definition, that then makes him a Hebrew. You go back in the lineage of Abraham, and Abraham came from a man who was named Eber. 
where from we get the word Hebrew, okay? So Abraham the Hebrew, since you're a son of Abraham, by definition, you are therefore then a Hebrew. But Paul's lineage did not come through Ishmael. Ultimately, it came through Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob is the one whose name was changed to Israel. So Paul says, I too am an Israelite. But not only that, if you took the time to look in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 5, you find that Paul also even gives us his very tribe. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, these Judaizers, these critics of Paul's ministry, they can't pretend to be more Jewish than Paul. In fact, he studied and followed Old Testament Jewish tradition as a Pharisee under Gamaliel more than all the rest of his critics put together. And yet, here he is teaching to the Corinthians to follow Jesus Christ. You know what that makes him? That makes him, what it says in verse 23, more a minister of Christ than all of the rest. Because even though he had the same pedigree, even though he had the same background and training and upbringing and history and tradition and religion, he understood the truth. So he was more of a minister of Christ than all of they. And let me just say, if you say that like Paul said it, well, that's a road that's going to bring some opposition your way. And so as a result, we're going to break this down and do a couple of subcategories, and the first one is he had more toil, more toil. Verse 23 goes on, and he says, in labors, more abundant. In labors, more abundant. Listen, friends, don't kid yourselves. The ministry is hard work. Paul knew that right up front. From the time he was sent out as a missionary from the church in Antioch, God had called him to, note this, a work. He didn't call him to a vacation. He didn't call him to frequent flyer miles. Remember Acts 13 too, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work. It's not a joy ride. Whereunto I have called them. Listen, even studying the Bible, the fun part of ministry right? Even studying the Bible is hard work. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know what differentiates people who are actually good Bible teachers from those who are not? It's not just some magic that God gives you in a spiritual gift to be able to do it. Well, there's something to spiritual gifts. It's because he put in the work to study, it takes time to study, and it's hard work to do it, and to read, and to just saturate your mind, and to cross-reference, and to read the context, and the back history, and volumes, and to do it for a lifetime. It's hard work. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who notice labor in the word and doctrine. You see, by virtue of the fact that somebody's an elder, they're worthy of honor because they're in that position that God has ordained. But if they rule well by laboring in the Word 
and doctrine, well, they're worthy of double honor. And, well, that's okay because ministry, the work that we do for the Lord, right? Well, it's a labor of love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul reminds him, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Anybody who does something for the Lord hopefully has that motivation. It's, well, you do it because you love the Lord. You want to, right? It's, a, it's work, but it's a labor of love. But it's not just your work for God. Hopefully you understand that it's your work together with God. Right? And that's 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 8 and 9. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry, you're God's building. You're not in this alone. And if you're trying to pull off the work of the ministry in your own strength, you're only going to last so long. You're going to burn out. We see people burn out all the time. They get excited about the Lord, they get saved, they get plugged in for a while, but they don't ever really understand how to let the Spirit of God fill their heart and soul and life and then work through them unto others. Because as we'll see as we get into some of the details of this list of Paul's experiences that we just read, it ain't always fun. And I mean to tell you, people are the vehicle through which most all those problems come. And if you're just doing it in you, I don't care how nice you are on a Sunday when you're dressed up, it's going to get to you. You got to work together with God. You got to let Him work in and through you, right? And well, knowing that, like we read in verse number eight, we're going to be rewarded. And we're going to be rewarded based not just on being busy but on the kind of work that we did, right? Continuing on in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, every man's work shall be made manifest. That means you don't get in on your grandma's work. You don't get in on your godly wife or husband's work. Your very work will stand by itself with you alone before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Every man's work will be made manifest. It doesn't say every man's luck will be made manifest. Your work For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. Why? Of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. And that's going to happen to some people, or it wouldn't be written in there. But he himself shall be saved, because it's not an issue of your salvation. It's an issue of your working for the Lord after your salvation. Now listen, y'all. I mean... I wrestled with this message because this point alone, and it's only like four words in one verse. We got like 15 verses. Um, I mean, we could just go on and on and on about all the work we need to be busy working for the Lord. And I could work this thing, man, and I could make most all of you feel pretty guilty about what you're not doing. Let me just, I mean, let me just tell you. That's a work I've given myself to. <laughs> but that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do rather is just let you know and remind you of the very last verse in 1 Corinthians 15. And that your work and labor and sacrifice for the Lord, it's worth it, y'all. Whatever you do, it's worth it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, He's going to use it 
His word does not come back void. So let me just ask you a question and ask yourself this question. Do you want to be a minister of Jesus Christ? Because if you want to be a minister of Jesus Christ, can I tell you, be like Paul. Paul outworked all of his critics. He outworked them all. And let me just say to you, it is an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. That the guys making all the noise, complaining about you, generally aren't doing anything themselves. Have you ever noticed that? It's always the guy sitting on the sideline who has all the time in the world because he's not busy doing anything. So while he's got all this free time, he's hyper-analyzing you and your work and then going about to criticize it to others to make himself look more important, to make himself look relevant and valid. I could tell you stories. There's actually one that stands out in my mind. There was a situation where I was fairly new in our ministry in Albania, and there was a young man who just graduated seminary in Memphis, and he, came, he, he graduated in missions. And so since you graduate in missions, you have to be a missionary. God forbid you went through any of the other qualifications. Because he didn't. There's very clear that he didn't. He showed up in Albania, a single young man, and he came to me, and he said, Jeff, listen, man, I, I just got to tell you. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm really confused. Now, he'd already raised his support. This means that elderly people on fixed incomes were sacrificing their money so this guy could come and be a missionary in Albania. He shows up at this children's orphanage where we began our ministry, and he said, Jeff, I don't even know what I believe anymore. In fact, I'm not even sure if I believe in God anymore. And he began to tell me how when he grew up in his home church, he loved the Lord, he loved the Bible, he understood what he understood. He went away to seminary, and they cast and put all this doubt in his head, and he came out of seminary questioning everything he ever believed. And then time went on, and I tried to help him a little bit. I was, not going to lie, a little frustrated with this guy because I didn't go to Albania to disciple a fake missionary. I went to Albania to win Albanians and make disciples of them. Nevertheless, the Lord placed him in my world, and so I said, okay, and we began to work together, and some other circumstances came up. I won't bother with the details, but he had some trouble in his life personally, and because of the trouble in his life personally, he was at that time kind of leading the youth group we had developed. Um, he said, Jeff, I need to take some time off. I just can't do all this. I'm overwhelmed, and I need to just sit and, and kind of regather and figure out what God's doing. Okay, I'll, I'll give you time. I'll, I'll, you just sit for a while, and you figure out what you need to get, and, and we'll talk and whatever. Well, during that time, he was doing absolutely nothing. I was preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, doing all the discipleship, involved leading the worship. I was involved in everything. And uh, he was just sitting there doing nothing. In fact, Errol's brother, when he was very, very young, ended up having to take over the youth because this loser couldn't keep it up. During that time, I say that with love. Don't, get, don't look at me that way. I told you I like Paul. This guy, you won't believe it, this is true. I mean, I couldn't make this up. One day I wake up in our apartment. Errol and I lived in an apartment. And there was this envelope, one of those big manila envelopes, slid under the door. I open up the envelope. Ten typed pages that this guy wrote to me of all my doctrinal error that he had been observing while he was sitting on his blessed assurance just listening. 
let's just say I handled it, okay? <laughs> and let's just say that shortly after I handled it, amazing, God called that guy to a different ministry. Isn't that amazing? Well, the Lord is good. I'm just saying, the guys who are making all the noise complaining, the guys who are critics, typically are the guys who have too much time on their hands because they're not busy working. Paul labored more than all of them. You know what I really love and appreciate about Kale and Matt? I mean, there's a lot of things to love and appreciate about those brothers. But I love and appreciate about those guys that they have proven themselves to not be lazy. They are hard-working, diligent brothers. And that's why I have no qualms in the world to send a guy like Kale halfway around the world completely unsupervised. That guy couldn't not do work if his life depended on it. He's a hard-working brother. Both those guys are. You know what that means? You know why some of you are never going to make it as fruitful ministers? Because you are lazy. You just don't want to work. You think that ministry is just the 50 minutes I get to stand up here and mouth off telling you what to do. You think ministry is just the glory when people come to you and say, oh, thank you, pastor, you know, here, have some cookies or whatever. Like that happens a lot. Which, by the way, that's not a bad idea. Or fruit, if it's mock suit. <laughs> I got to say it, man. I had to say it. Let me ask you something. Ask yourself this. When your life's over, what do you want to look back and see? Right? Listen, I'm not going to go into it, but I, you know, I had my little experience the last few months, and there was a moment there I was wondering, is this it? What do you want to look back and see? You want to see a life of just enjoying success? Or do you want to see a life of eternal significance? I think you've got to decide now. So today's Father's Day. What do you know? And fathers are generally known to be the primary workers in a home. Generally speaking, men enjoy working. We get satisfaction from it, right? Why then is there such a shortage of men of God that will do the work of the ministry? Why is it the churches around this world are filled with women volunteering to do much of the work? I know why. Because the men won't stand up and be men. Paul said he outworked everybody. I think Paul knew why too. And this transitions into our next point, 1 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So laboring is going to bring a reproach, and that's our next point, letter B. Not only more toil, but more trouble. More trouble. He starts off in verse 21, I speak as concerning reproach. So in the pursuit of working for the Lord, Paul ran into a lot of trouble. Reproach is a word that is also translated in other places in your Bible as dishonor disgrace or shame and although God says to honor those that labor in the Lord and, and in churches we certainly do try to do that but in the world that's not the case in the world when you labor for the Lord they think you're a fool that's really what it means to be a fool for Christ 
What it means to be for a fool for Christ is to give it all for Jesus and let the lost world think you're a nut for doing it. In the world, you don't get honor. You get the opposite. You get dishonor. You get reproach. Now, that shouldn't phase you one bit. Because when we turn the page and see in a couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 10, Paul said, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then am I strong. Let, bring it on. Paul's the greatest minister that ever lived, and we're to follow his example. As he follows Christ's example. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 to 14, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, in this earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You see, friends, I don't know whether you thought about it this way or not, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, you know what he did? He bore your shame. He bore your reproach. And you know what he's asking you to do? He's asking you to bear his reproach now in your ministry. That's what he's asking you to do. And by the way, can I tell you that if you truly are born again and you're not taking those steps to move forward for the Lord and, and seeing opposition as a natural consequence from there... Let me just tell you that that principle I just said to you is going to take place no matter what you think or say or do. If you're truly born again and Jesus Christ bore your shame and reproach on the cross, and he did, you absolutely 100% money back guarantee will bear his shame and reproach somewhere, someday. And it's either going to be right now for a handful of years in this earth suit, or it's going to be for a thousand years in the millennium. Because that's the pairing out of the rewards, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or not. And you'll go around having it known to everybody how exactly we've talked about in the past and maybe we'll talk about in the future. But let me promise you, you will bear his reproach. And if you're smart, it's just good math to do it now. Not for a thousand years. And I'm never going to finish, I told you. None of this in my notes. Okay. But in living such a life, by the way, a life of suffering, you know what that does do for you. It means you have fellowship with Jesus. That's Philippians 3.10. That I may know him, amen, and the power of his resurrection, hallelujah, and the fellowship of his sufferings, oh my, being made conformable unto his death. Because it's all part of the package fellowship when you have fellowship with somebody you have something in common with them you got something in common with jesus he suffered for you do you suffer for him second corinthians chapter six when we studied that months ago the theme of chapter six was the fellowship of the minister and when we looked at that we saw in the list of things well, let me just remind you of verses four and five Speaking of the fellowship of the minister, it says, But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, how? In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. 
Sound familiar? 2 Corinthians 11. So Paul's troubles are described in really two main categories. And so the first category is point number one, continuing on in judgments, verses 23 to 25, where he says he lists his troubles in judgment. In other words, others judging him in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. This is the manifestation of corporal and capital punishment of a transgressor. Somebody who is judged guilty by some corrupt, demonic, antichrist government power. Satan is the god of this world. He controls the kingdoms of this world. And he exercises power over him. We all know about Paul's trials before the Roman governor Felix and King Agrippa at the end of the book of Acts and ultimately before Caesar. And all along Paul's life, he was taken captive and tried and beaten and whipped and stoned. So I guess Paul learned that sticks and stones may break my bones. And that other part about, but words will never hurt me, well, the truth of the matter is that's actually not true because they can hurt too, according to Proverbs 26, 22, which say the words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down in the innermost part of the belly. But listen, don't kid yourself. That's some ministry resume, isn't it? I mean, that's tough living. I mean, seriously, ask yourself this question. I think I put this in your notes. What would you do if those things happened to you in the pursuit of ministry? I mean, just stop and think about it for a minute. Wrongly accused, wrongly unjustly tried, and unjustly found guilty, and therefore punished to the full extent of the law, up to and including... An attempt at capital punishment. You see, Paul was falsely judged all his life in ministry. And this maximum extent of the law I refer to is really Deuteronomy 25.3 where the maximum amount the law would allow you to whip a guy was 40 times. So with Paul, they made sure that they just stopped one short. 40 stripes, save one. 39 stripes, five different times in his life. And he was left for dead. That's a story back in Acts 14 I've referenced to you weeks past where he was stoned and left for dead. And I believe he actually died. And we'll see that next week when we get into the next chapter. But what about you? What if in your life the local authorities and the police and the government and the judges and the trial system and the court system gathered you up and tried you wrongly and beat you half to death and threw you in prison over and over and over again, what would you do? For, the cause, for standing for Christ, not for being an idiot. Would you fight back? Would you just gripe and complain about it? I mean, listen, don't, don't let me sound like I wouldn't do some of those things. I'm saying this is a sober question for us all. Would you hire a good lawyer? Would you write to your congressman? <laughs> okay, I know, I, know, I know what county I live in. Would you go all Rambo on him? Would you just get vigilante? I mean, what would you do? 
Well, here's what I'm worried about what you might do. Would you blame God and quit serving the Lord? That's what Paul's trying to communicate. You don't think Paul protested against this bad treatment that he got? Yeah, Paul's protest against the false judgment was to continually choose to die to himself daily. Because you know what? If he did it willingly, then they couldn't take it from him. That's a real man. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. So in our text in verse 23, he says, in deaths oft. I think there's a physical application. We'll see that next week. I think there's a daily spiritual dying to yourself application. You should die to yourself often. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, first five verses say this, Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But notice what he says. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Paul didn't give two flips about man's false judgment toward him. Yea, I don't even judge my own self, he says. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. And if you have that perspective, friends, then man's judgment doesn't bother you either. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the time, good advice, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then, only then, shall every man have praise of God. So let him judge you. It's not your fight. But rather, just keep going. Just keep pressing on. Right? In the words of Dory, just keep on swimming. So that's the next one. So he had troubles and judgments. And number two, he has troubles and journeys. Starting in verse 25, continuing on. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I'd say Paul lived in perilous times. These are all problems of life that happened as a result of his journeyings. Paul was a foreign missionary. He constantly traveled to take the gospel to new people. We know, recorded in the scripture, that he took three specific missionary journeys, and then he had that final trip that took him to Rome. And all along the way, the accommodations weren't that great. When he was on some cargo ship, he experienced the perils of the sea and shipwreck and floating around in the water, hearing that Jaws music in the back of his head. Do-do, 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 you know, and he's floating around thinking, what in the world? So he's like, forget that, I'm traveling on land. He, so he's got travels on land, he's like, I got two choices, let's go to the city. That's where most of the people are. Oh, no, peril's in the city. And he's like, I knew it, the country's better in the city anyway, amen? And so he goes out in the, in the country and he's like, oh man, peril's in the country, in the wilderness. I guess, I guess there's carnal God-haters in both places. 
Well, while in transit between one place to the other, he was in perils of robbers, people stopping him, taking all his stuff. Didn't really matter where he went or who the audience was. He had trouble from all three people groups that the Bible describes. He had trouble from the Jew, mine own countrymen. He had trouble from the Gentile, the heathen. And he had trouble from the church, the false brethren. I guess Paul is the guy who gets to apply that sage advice. When everybody really is out to get you, maybe being paranoid is just good planning. You think about that for a while. When everybody's really out to get you, is it paranoia? Look, no wonder, no wonder he was in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, always looking over his shoulder, and hunger and thirst and fastings often, just begging God to do something in cold and in nakedness. He was worn out. He was worn out. But I do want you to know this, that this is in your notes. Paul avoided trouble when he could, but was content when he couldn't. And that's verses 32 and 33. Verses 32 and 33 references an event from Acts chapter 9 and verse 25, where the disciples took him by night and let him down the wall in a basket. But that escape plan... And it happened a couple other times as you read through the book of Acts. The brethren got around him, you know, the certain lewd fellows of the baser sort come after him and, and they said, hey, you better get out of Dodge before it's too late. And it happened time and again. But that wasn't always available to Paul. But the truth is Paul didn't really care because the mission was greater than his personal life. He had an eternal perspective. That's why he could write to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. Not that I speak in respect of want or need, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, that's what we read today, and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. It's all because of verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. As long as the Lord doesn't leave me, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to forge ahead. I'm going to continue to journey on. I'm going to keep pointed forward, and I'm going to keep looking for more people that need the Lord before it's too late. But be honest with yourself. Seriously. This, I mean, we came, we came to church, hopefully, to meet the Lord today. It's nice to meet one another. It is. But hopefully you came here to meet Jesus today. Let me, just, let me just ask you, consider this. If this kind of a life really was your life and, and you felt like you were called to the Lord to be on this mission and all these circumstances happened to you, wouldn't you begin to think that maybe you chose the wrong profession? I mean, be honest. Wouldn't you expect if God called me, then things ought to work out better? But that would be short-sighted. You see, Paul was ridiculously successful, spiritually. People got saved all over the place. Churches were started all over the place. It just cost him something. It cost him some significant discomfort to see that happen. 
So the big question for you and your ability to gain wisdom, the wisdom of experience, is would you consider taking on such discomfort in order to see that kind of glory for the Lord? Would you be willing? Because without question, that's much more readily available and applicable day-to-day in the life of a foreign missionary. But God's no respecter of persons. It's the life of anybody who will take a stand for Him because, like I said, there's, there's God-hating carnal heathen everywhere, no matter where you go. But this is the wisdom of Paul's experience. False teachers, well, they don't have any answer for it because false teachers don't have any legitimate fruit in their life. They lazy, they're lazy, they sit around, they'll steal your sheep, but they don't create any of their own. They're sterile. They don't have anything. This is the exact context Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where he said, Beware of false prophets, there's your context, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. They're going to eat you up. How do you know who they are? You'll know them by their fruits. That's how you'll know them. I mean, just pay attention. Just hang around them long enough. You'll know them by their fruits. They're all talk. And they've got nothing to show for it. The boldness of Paul was because of his experience. He knew what he went through. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Say what you want. I know where I've been, and the Lord knows where I've been, and I know what I've been through, and I know what God's done. You could talk all day long. It doesn't affect me. I am more bold, he says. But that's not his nature. That's why he keeps saying, I speak as a fool. It's not... It's not his nature to stand up for himself. Deep down, and this is point number two, we have the brokenness of Paul's experience. And this won't last that long if you're looking at your watch. We'll actually finish on time. Starting in verse 28, notice it says, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So all the previous things that we listed and talked about already are without. The trouble came to him from external sources. That's the response you get from those who are associated with what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven, an earthly physical kingdom, the governments of this world. Now Paul transitions to talk about things that are within the family of God. This is the kingdom of God. Luke 17, 20 and 21. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo, here, lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God, it's within you. So when he transitions to leave behind the things that are without, he's going to talk about the things that are within. Of course, he's talking about the care of the family of God, the care of all the churches. Can I just tell you that caring for churches requires self-sacrifice? Caring for churches requires self-sacrifice. It includes worrying about them, praying for them, checking up on them, visiting them in need, listening to their problems, finding God's solutions. Romans chapter 12 is a great chapter on ministry in the church and how we're to behave among one another. So let me read several verses starting in verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful 
not lazy in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you do all that stuff, by the way, that's a lot of work. But can I just ask you, did you notice did you notice in this chapter, this section about how to interact with one another? To give you the gravity of what Paul said when he says, beside all that, man, the care of all the churches. And you're thinking, phew, finally some joy. Okay, well, did you notice that in the midst of the care of the churches here in Romans 12, we have tribulation, persecution, weeping, evil, vengeance, enemies. Did you notice that? You see, such a life of personal surrender to serve the needs of others, others who frequently don't appreciate it, will break you down. And that's what we see with Paul. We see the brokenness of Paul's experience because he goes on then in verses 29 to 31, he says, who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's offended and I burn not? You just hear his heart. If I must needs glory, I'll glory in the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. See, before he wasn't lying, but he was choosing to answer as a fool the folly of the accusations sent his way. It's like, I'll defend myself, but it's not really me. I don't want to do it. I'm just standing for the truth. But, but let me just... Let me just open up my chest a little bit and show you my heart here. Who, who's weeping and I'm not weeping? Who's hurting and I'm not hurting? If there's anything that I can be proud of, I'm just proud of the fact that I've had some infirmities. Paul stops bragging about himself. He stops defending himself as a fool, and he gets real honest here. Yeah, it's true. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10 says that his bodily presence was weak. And as we'll see in the next chapter, 12 and verse 7, he had that thing called the thorn in the flesh. And this burning that he refers to is it's the intense emotion and grief that comes with the care of the churches. But Paul realized he's thinking, that's okay. Because God's grace is sufficient. And that's what we see in the next chapter. We'll get to it soon enough. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, concerning this thorn in the flesh. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I, Paul says, rather glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake, like we read earlier. For when I am weak, 
then am I strong in Christ, see. I want us to take a minute and look at the example of another guy in Scripture that demonstrates this, and that's Moses, the example of Moses. Let me just tell you, there may be greater examples of faith and leadership in the Bible. There are better examples of faith and leadership in the Bible than Moses. But God lets us see the details of the life of Moses, I think so that we can understand better what pastors go through. You see, we don't have time. When you read through the Old Testament and the book of Exodus and Numbers especially, Deuteronomy, you realize that Moses was the leader of a church of about two million people. And Moses continued to pastor that same group for 40 years. Along the way, his sister got mad at him, his brother got mad at him. The whole congregation was constantly murmuring and complaining against him. They met together and had private meetings without Moses around to see if they could remove him from his position. They so got on his nerves that he gets mad and breaks all ten commandments. That's, a good, that's the picture of ministry. That's the care of all the churches. Yeah, Moses got tired in the ministry, but sometimes Moses got tired of the ministry. And we see that in Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 to 15. Just, just listen. This is after God had come through and he'd killed some of them for complaining, and then they kept complaining and say, we hate this bread, give us, food, give us some meat to eat. I mean, you know, just unending. Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, get this, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, me in other words, and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this, I'm going to add whining people, upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the suckling child, and unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it's too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, God, kill me. I pray thee out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. I'd rather die than have to keep living and dealing with this baloney. It happens. It happens. You know what? Let me just tell you something. Christian ministry ain't for sissies. It's hard work. And there's always going to be problems. And you young men and women who are praying about a life of vocational ministry, you better count the cost now. You better count it now. So I left this last statement in your notes, and we're not quite done yet, so don't, don't think we are. But the statement says, Paul was the greatest minister, so Paul had the toughest circumstances. Your experiences will never be as severe, praise the Lord, but you are still commanded to follow his example. So, if you'll humor me, can I quickly tell you a little bit about my, my experiences in ministry? 
I mean, I speak as a fool. See, from the time I was saved in 1983, I immediately surrendered all to follow the Lord, whatever that meant. I had no idea. And the Lord's taken me on some amazing journeys, and He's allowed some trouble. My first foreign mission trip was in 1986 in the country of Kenya, and we were showing the Jesus film to people who had never seen it. Actually, they say it was such a remote area, they'd never seen a white man before. They opposed the showings violently. Actually, it was a Muslim-dominated area by vandalizing all our equipment and throwing stones at us to make us leave their villages. A couple years later, in 1988, my next mission trip was in the jungles of Belize, Central America, and we were preaching to Mayan Indians in their villages. And we had to sleep on cots out in the open air, and it was weird. We bathed in ponds, and I got horribly sick one time, and of course, we're, on, we're in the jungle. We're far from any medical help, and I had these terrible stomach cramps with vomiting and diarrhea and all that, and all they had was a nasty outhouse in the middle of the night. I make my way out to the outhouse, which was just covered with not just the monster roaches that fly, but the big poisonous spiders and something else I can't say the word of because my wife's in the room. Um, they were everywhere. A couple years later in the Philippines, my next mission trip was in 1990, and we happened to be there during a time when there was a communist coup trying to overthrow the government, and we had some amazing opportunities preaching to the military and in different villages, and I was sent on this, this trip with a couple of Filipino guys, and, and we were going to get in a canoe, and we were going to go across the sea a little bit to a small island where they said there was a group of people who had never heard the gospel. But they had gotten word while we were in the, in the bus ride down to the port where we were going to get in this canoe. They had gotten word that the communists had overrun that island and that they threatened to kill any white men if they showed up there. And the Filipino brothers turned to me and they asked me, they said, what do you want to do? And I don't want to pretend like I'm brave. I promise I'm not. But I, I said, let's go. Let's do it. And uh, ultimately, probably the greatest decision ever. I don't know. They, they made the executive decision, said it's too dangerous. We're not going to do it. So I was willing, but like Paul in the basket, I got away. Nothing happened. 1992, my next mission trip was in Albania. And of course, ultimately, I stayed there. It was right after communism. And I was 30 years old. And I was all alone. I had no wife. I had no ministry partner. I had no mission board. And, and I was all alone. And when I got there, there was abject poverty. We had to stand in line for bread. There was no phones, no communication, at least not as we know it today. And the list of things that I could go through, I just hit, want to hit some highlights. I actually had to risk my life to exchange $10,000 into local, local currency. I had to do it in the back room of a building with a some bunch of mafia thugs. Honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into, but once I was in there, I was worried I wasn't going to make it out. I got out, obviously, and, and upon buying that vehicle, well... It was a piece of junk, and it kept constantly breaking down while I was out driving in a remote area. The thing broke down again. I'm not particularly handy, but I was on the back of the vehicle, and I was looking. I stood up too quick, and I cut my head wide open on a brace hanging off the back of the Jeep uh, spare tire brace. And so I'm far from any medical hospital availability, and my head, head bleeds a lot, and so blood is pouring down my face. Within the first six months of ministering in the capital city in Tehran, I was so overwhelmed and overworked that my body literally just shut down. I, to this day, don't know exactly what happened to me. I just call it severe fatigue. But I literally couldn't walk from here to where I was sitting before I stood up here without having to sit down again. I had to literally stop for over a week and do nothing but lay down under the care of an American military nurse who happened to be in the area. I'd been robbed. I'd been punched in the face. I was punched in a more private area by a street beggar once. 
I was hit by cars three different times while riding my bike. My bike was the way I got to my ministry appointments. When I finally bought a car after eight or ten years, I forget how many years we'd been there before I finally bought a car for the first time, I only had a few months and they stinking stole it from me. I reported it to the police, only come to find out the police were in on it. I think the police stole it. I had my life personally threatened by three credible life threats by parents of kids that got saved in our church. And the parents didn't like the fact that the kids got saved and they said they were going to kill me. Two of the three very specifically were very real and very credible to the point where my wife said, you might consider leaving the country. There were constant perils in living through a civil war. During that time when there was anarchy in the streets back in the late 1990s, one time, it's a long story, but I was in my vehicle. I had to go rescue a guy who was one of the attackers of our ministry. It's a long story. He, was, he turned on me and he was evil toward me, but he was stuck and he was in dire need and he was an hour drive away all alone and he was afraid for his life because of the conditions of the, the, the bandits just running the countryside. And he begged me if I would come help him. He got real humble real quick. And he asked me if I'd go help him, and I said I'd go help him. And it was already getting dark, and they had kind of like this curfew. And Erla said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go help this guy. And she said, don't help him. He hates you. <laughs> and uh, I don't mean to throw her under the bus. She was right. That's your normal reaction. But my thought was, listen, truly, if it was me and I was in his spot and his number was the only number that was left, I would pray to God that he would be nice enough to come get me. So I decided to go while I was out on that road. My, my worst fear happened. I'm alone. I'm traveling in this little van that I had. And uh, about 10 guys wearing masks, ski masks, all holding automatic weapons, stand out in the road, and they're like, stop. I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Well, make a long story short, who are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? I told them. They're like, all right, just get out of here. <sighs> story after story of that time, people, at, if not killed, at a minimum, they take your keys in your vehicle, and then they leave you stranded in the middle of nowhere, you know, just on your own. That didn't happen, thankfully. God's grace was sufficient. Our church had been broken into many times. It had been vandalized. One time, they literally took dung and spread it all over the walls and vandalized all our files and all our equipment and all that sort of thing. We had constant, just regular, constant fighting with people and conflicts everywhere who were just normal street people, normal people who were just sick of the corruption and seemed to just want to take it out on everybody else every day. And can I say, besides all those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now, obviously, it all turned out okay, and God gave more grace. Amen. So like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10 says, By the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And can I tell you, if I can do that, you can do something significant too. I mean, come on dads. Let's man up. Let's get to work. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And I'd like to just end with what the writer of Hebrews gives us in chapter number 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily, easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus Christ saw what was in front of him, which included even the cross. But he didn't just see the cross. He saw beyond the cross, and he said, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that's what we need to consider. The joy that's on the other side of the sufferings. I mean, face it, friends. You haven't yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I think there's plenty more that we can still do. There's wisdom in experience, but it's got to be the right kind of experience. Amen.